church. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'll invite you to take it out now and turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You're welcome to take that with you as a gift from our church to you. We have others that we will replace that one with. I do recognize um, this morning that uh, many of you may have been expecting, even though we warned you last week, that we would be in Mark chapter 7 because, well, Mark 7 follows Mark 6. And we have a very clear way of preaching through God's Word uh, on Sunday mornings. But this weekend, we hosted a marriage conference. We had just over 100 people from our church gather here on Friday night. And on Saturday, well, let me say this, uh, uh, just over 100 adults. We may have had just that many children here as well. Um, but Friday night and Saturday with Dr. Tate Cockrell and his wife, Wendy, from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, talking about building healthy marriages that last. We had a wonderful weekend on Friday and uh, Saturday talking about these things uh, together. I really think uh, it was just an incredible time uh, of challenge in our marriage, and I hope it was a benefit to the many who showed up. Uh, we've given them instructions about how to com- kind of communicate that in small group as you may ask questions if you weren't able to be uh, involved with us. But as we have kind of become our custom, uh, we try to host a fall conference where we pick a subject and expose you to kind of an expert in the field on that subject. Uh, We also, I try to preach on that Sunday on that subject in the series that we're in, and occasionally it means I have to jump ahead or back a little bit to be able to do so. Uh, And so in our normal preaching calendar, I would have been in Mark 10 right around Christmas time, To be honest with you, I'm kind of glad I'm moving this sermon off of Christmas uh, into today. But since we together as a church have been thinking about marriage all weekend together, we're going to conclude this weekend uh, by seeing what Jesus has to say on the subject of marriage and sexuality. So we will be back in Mark 7 next week, but today we consider the verse 12 verses of Mark chapter 10. I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. Mark writes for us, starting in verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to gather together this morning as the corporate body of Nansman River Baptist Church to worship you and to study your word. We thank you, God, for the opportunity many of us took this Friday and Saturday to be challenged in our marriages and to work to strengthen them. 
God, we thank you for the so many healthy marriages in this room. We thank you, God, for the honor that this church gives to marriage and the work that we do to support the union of husband and wife. I pray, God, for the marriages in this room that may be struggling right now, for the people in this room, individuals who may be struggling with their view of marriage and their understanding of sexuality and what God has called good. Would you help us through the teachings of Jesus, through the instruction of your word, to stand firm, we pray, to hold fast to what you have said is good for us and necessary. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I am under... uh, no delusion that today's sermon is not possibly going to be somewhat controversial. Uh, I am okay with that. (laughs) I hope you are. If already, the three minutes that I've been up here, you're already putting up walls and borders. You're already wanting to push back or everything in you is wanting to get up and leave. I'll I'll invite you, please, just hear me out. And more important than me, will you hear out what Jesus has to say? Will you hear the word of God this morning? Will you be open to that? I recognize there are likely, not just young people, but there are likely some young people here today that this is going to go against everything that they are being told by their culture today. And so I want to start, every now and then I'll do this. I want to start by addressing the objections. Because I realize there are probably some people in the room with objections already to what I have said and what we have read from the text and what I am going to expound upon in the, over the course of this sermon. So let me tell you what I think the two primary objections that we would experience here in the year 2022 in the United States. First, there are likely those who are already thinking we have as a society outgrown what Jesus is saying here. That this is an ancient teaching, that this was an ancient culture, that Jesus existed within first century Judaism, that he existed within a broader Roman context, and that Jesus was only addressing that which he was seeing before him in that day. And I will affirm Jesus is, yes, very much addressing that which he sees before him today, or before him in that day. But that does not mean that we have in any way outgrown these teachings. We, we need to understand clearly that, that Jesus isn't just uh, giving some instructions to Pharisees and later in those latter verses, his disciples uh, in some type of uh, vacuum that existed only there in the first century. What Jesus does by appealing to creation itself is Jesus is establishing for us good teaching that should be embraced by his church for all time. Objection number two. And we hear this a lot. I've heard this a lot lately. That Jesus never actually addressed some of the subjects that I'm going to address today. That Jesus was only addressing marriage as it existed then. And because we have outgrown this understanding, Jesus isn't addressing things like so-called same-sex marriage. Jesus isn't addressing uh, gender fluidity that we, that so many in our culture have grown to embrace and, and really 
even force upon uh, so many others. But again, I would ask, if that's you, if that's your objection today, will you at least for the next half hour or so, probably a little longer, remain open-minded, hear out what our Lord has to say? And then if you still are struggling with this, my office is open. <laughs> I am happy to sit down and talk with you on this. I say this every single week or every single month when I teach Connect class. I will drop just about anything that I'm doing to help a marriage. And that extends beyond just a marriage that exists. That extends also to those who have a wrong understanding of what marriage and sexuality is. So let's see what Jesus has to say. Main idea of today's sermon. God's design for marriage and sexuality should be embraced as both good and essential and deviation from it as harmful and sinful. So Jesus is going to define clearly for us God's design for both marriage and sexuality. And we, as followers of Jesus, should embrace it as both good, meaning it is for our good, we shouldn't kick against the goads because we don't like it. We should see it as good and as non-negotiable, as essential. That Jesus is not speaking in riddles here. He is not speaking in mysteries here. Jesus is abundantly clear. Nature, God, in the way that he created his world has been abundantly clear. So a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality is essential for our discipleship. And then deviations from it. To deviate from that path must be viewed by God's church as the opposite of good, meaning it is harmful for us. It is harmful for us as individuals. It is harmful. It would be harmful for our church if we were to embrace a deviation. And it is harmful for our culture when they do. And sinful, meaning we must confront it as sin. That to deviate from what God has said is good and essential is to disobey God. And to disobey God is to sin. Now make no mistake, I understand that I'm preaching this today in our culture. And we live in a culture that, incre that is increasingly demanding not only that we tolerate deviation from God's design for marriage and sexuality, but is now demanding that we affirm those choices as good. This will not be a sermon that does so. Oh, church, would we, by the help of God, stand on what God has said is good and essential and not give in to the pressures of the mob. Verse 1 gives us the setting, and the setting of this, I think, is important for our understanding of it. We read, and, they, and he left there, meaning Galilee. So where Mark has had Jesus the entire time in those first nine chapters, Jesus is now going to leave there. And in just one chapter, he's going to record what the other synoptic gospels take more time to record. And that is Jesus's final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so he goes into the region of Judea, meaning he has left Galilee and gone down into Judea. And then he has crossed over following the regular pattern, the regular path that Galileans would take on their way to Jerusalem in order to avoid most of Samaria. He would cross over the Jordan. But even then, crowds begin to gather around him. This is 
leading into the time of Passover. Jesus with his disciples are going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So is just about everybody else in Galilee. And so the crowds are still pressing in on him on the road, even though they've left that place. And so Jesus does, Mark says, what is his custom? He teaches them. So now on his way to Jerusalem, what Mark condenses for us, I think in a helpful way, and I'll remind us of this in several weeks when we come back to, this, come back to Mark chapter 10, is that Mark condenses this journey of Jesus to show us the journey of discipleship. There's like five different stories here in Mark chapter 10, all of them speaking to a, a different understanding of discipleship. And it is no mistake that the first one that he deals with is marriage. The first thing Mark shows to us in this journey of discipleship is that we must have a right understanding of marriage and sexuality because a right understanding of marriage, a biblical understanding of who we are created as men and women and what the union, the lifelong union of a man and a woman really means is essential to discipleship. Now, let me be abundantly clear. Marriage is not essential for discipleship. If it was, then Jesus, unmarried, would be lacking in something. And he was certainly not lacking in anything. So for the unmarried people in the room, young people who have not had the opportunity to marry, grown adults who have never married or have experienced divorce or have been widowed, understand something. You are not a second-class Christian because you are currently not married. But your understanding of marriage, the way that you think about marriage, the way that you as a single person honors marriage and the way that you talk about marriage and interact with the opposite sex is crucial for your discipleship. Our understanding of marriage and sexuality is essential for the way that we follow Jesus. So Mark begins this journey of discipleship in Mark chapter 10 with clear teaching of Jesus about the subject. Number one, hardened hearts will seek to deviate from God's design for marriage and sexuality. Look at verses two through five. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So we're told here on the way to Jerusalem, the Pharisees are going to test him. We're told that in verse two. This is very clearly a test. Mark records their question as, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Matthew records a, a, a longer version of that in Matthew 19. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? We can assume that final clause, that any reason here in Mark's text, if we understand what's happening in Jesus's day. This is definitely a test of the Pharisees. They are trying to trap Jesus. It's what they do. It's not the first time they're going to do it. It's not the last time we're going to see them do it. They're trying to trap Jesus. If you're new with us, the Pharisees, the religious ruling elite of the day, they were the ones that kept people under their thumb by uh, their, their position of religious authority. And so they're trying, they, Jesus is challenging them, and so they're going to try to test him. There were two primary understandings of marriage and divorce in first century Judaism that had raged, a debate had raged for several decades. And that's, that's the context in which this question is asked. One school of thought was that you could only divorce your wife because of adultery. There was not a 
there was not permission for a wife to divorce her husband, but there was permission for a husband to divorce his wife in cases of adultery. The other school of thought, which has kind of become dominant in Jesus' day, it wasn't the only one, but it was, pri- it was the primary one, and that was that you could pretty much divorce your wife. A man could put away his wife in divorce, could give her a certificate of divorce for any reason whatsoever. And some of the things listed in Jewish teachings from that time were things like a spoiled dinner. If she burnt your food, you could divorce her. If she walked publicly with her hair down, you could divorce her. If she spoke negatively about your mother, you could divorce her. These were things that they were actually putting in writing in that day. Meaning this, if a man decided, there was even one, if a man decided that his wife was no longer attractive to him, he could divorce her. So the, the prime, the, 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 primary thinking of the religious elite and what had been embraced by the people in Jesus's day was men could divorce their wife for pretty much any reason at all. Now, there were some who disagreed and this debate had raged, but that's not the only thing happening in the context. Verse one matters for us. Jesus has now crossed over into He's now crossed over into Judea and has crossed the the Jordan River into a land controlled by Herod Antipas and his wife Herodias. Herodias was Herod Antipas's brother's wife. She had divorced her husband and married his brother. And if you'll remember from a few weeks ago, John the Baptist was preaching against that marriage and was beheaded for it. So the Pharisees see this as an opportune moment. They're going to have Jesus on record, number one, teaching something that the people don't like, and number two, teaching something that Herod doesn't like. And they see, man, they are ready for him. They think we've, we've now got him. We're going to turn both the people against Jesus and we're going to turn Herod against Jesus But Jesus doesn't get stuck in this decades-old debate, nor does he fall into the trap trying to be set for him concerning Herod. He, as he so often does with the Pharisees, simply asks them a question. What does Moses say? He says, let's appeal to the authority. Let's go back to the law. What does Moses say? And they say, verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. But that's not all that Moses said. And that's certainly kind of taking Moses out of context. So let's go and see what Moses actually said in Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in the hands and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for this is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. 
So what Moses is addressing in Deuteronomy 24 is not whether a man should divorce his wife. It's what's happening if a man does divorce his wife and another man divorces that same woman and what that first man should do in relationship to her. Deuteronomy 24 is demonstrating to us that Moses tolerates but does not ever authorize or sanction divorce. Moses recognized that sin would always be in the midst of the people and the law in this case and in some other cases in the Old Testament law was intended to limit the, the, limit the spread of the effect of sin in the community of Israel. So Moses is not commenting on whether it is right for that man to divorce his wife or not. He is recognizing that it is a reality in the community that they are doing this and he, he gives some instructions to keep the sin from spreading. But Jesus, after they have summarized in verse four, Moses, probably inaccurately, Jesus says this to them. He says, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. Because hard and sinful hearts will always seek to deviate from God's moral law. And so Moses writes a commandment in Deuteronomy 24 seeking to limit the effect of sin in the life of the people because some of the people had hardened hearts and were going to not honor marriage as they should. And hard and sinful hearts will always seek to do that. And marriage and sexuality have always been a place back to the days of Moses to today including the day of Jesus, marriage and sexuality have been a place where the hardness of man's heart shows up. We see it as we look out on the landscape of our culture, as people seek to redefine gender, as people seek to redefine marriage, they are doing so because of the hardness of their heart. But take courage, Christians. We're not alone in this. This isn't new for us. They were doing this in Jesus's day too. Paul, writes about this in the Roman culture. He's in Romans chapter one, Paul is laying out the case for sin. Notice what he says in verse 21 starting. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul addresses the heart. They have sinful, darkened, hardened hearts. In verse 24, he says, therefore, because they have hardened hearts, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary, that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Sinful hearts lead to sinful sexual relationship and the defilement of God's design for the one man, one woman union that is marriage. It was doing it in, Mo they were doing it in Moses' day. 
They were doing it in Jesus' day. They were doing it in Paul's day. And they're still doing it in our day. This is one of the places that hardened hearts, sinful hearts, seek to change that which God has said is good. And we must recognize that. We must recognize that the move to deviate from God's design for marriage and sexuality is due to a hardened heart. So there are many hardened hearts in our culture today. And these hardened hearts are trying to say that what God has said is good is no longer good and right and essential. But Paul takes that hardened heart in Romans 2 and gives us a warning that must be heeded. Listen to what he says in verse 5 of Romans 2. Continuing that same line of thinking, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Make no mistake, those whose lives are defined by the actions of hardened hearts are under the wrath of God. This is why the church cannot embrace and affirm that which God says is sinful. And that which God says is a deviation from his design. Because to do so would put us in league with those who are still under the wrath of God. And church, we are not under the wrath of God. We are free from the wrath of God. We, we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. So we can no longer act like we used to act. We can no longer act like the world acts. It is the world who seeks to deviate. It cannot be God's church. Number two, God's design for human sexuality is good and essential for Christian discipleship. Look at verse six. Jesus says to the Pharisees, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Now let me just briefly address a hermeneutical question here, which means hermeneutics is the study of Scripture. It's how we study Scripture. Jesus is going to do something here that is helpful for us, but is not always helpful for us to do. And that is he is going to, he is going to use an argument that predates the argument of the Pharisees. The Pharisees appeal to Moses, so Jesus is going to appeal to creation. Jesus can do that because he's Jesus, okay? We don't need to look at things and say, well, this was said first in the Bible. So, No, the Bible does interpret the Bible, uh, but Jesus is able to do something here that sometimes is a good principle for us, particularly when uh, Christ or prophets or apostles themselves did it. We can follow the logic, and that's the logic that Jesus follows here. He goes, all right, Moses told you that, but let me tell you what God said in the garden. Jesus knows this because he was there. Let me, let me tell you what happened in, in the garden. He says, God made them male and female. Jesus appeals to the creation narrative in order to go back in time to before a concession of sin was necessary. Remember what God does in the garden with Adam and Eve is before sin has invaded the world. And so there is no need to, for a concession to be made like Moses is making. There's no need for it. So let's look at it, Genesis chapter 1. Then God, verses 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every, over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God created mankind. 
men and women, as men and women. And both men and women are created in the image of God. And God says that it is good. God says that it is for our good and it is necessary for us to understand that humanity is made up as God created it, not as a spectrum, but as men and women. And if you were born a man, you are a man in this world. And if you were born a woman, you were born a woman in this world. And to deviate from that is because of a hardened heart and because of the influence of sin. And God says there are men and women, both created in the image of God. And that, I don't want to just move past that. I want us to recognize that in Moses' day, women, when he's, Deuteronomy 24, when he's given this concession for sin, in that culture, women were viewed as lesser. In Jesus' day, in Paul's day, in first century Judaism, in the broader Roman world, women were viewed as lesser. But the scriptures do not view them in that way. Women. You don't need to try to be a man because you're not less than a man. You are an image bearer of God. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 3, in your notes it just says 28. I also want to read 27 for context. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So he's talking about in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for all are one in Christ. In Christ speaks to our eternal value. It speaks to our access to the gospel. It speaks to our importance to the body of Christ. There is no male or female. But in creation, in the created order, there is. Men and women are different. One is not better than the other. One is not closer to God than the other. They are different. They are distinct. They are men and women. And to, draw, to try and redefine man or to try and redefine woman is then to malign that which God has called good in his created order. If there is no such thing as a man or if there's no such thing as a woman, then what follows in Jesus' argument falls apart completely. Because Jesus is going to make an argument for a one man and one woman union that lasts a lifetime. And to redefine either of those components of that union completely eliminates what the Bible has said is true about the one man, one woman union of marriage. Next, God's design for marriage is good and essential for Christian discipleship. Look at verses 7 through 9. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus then continues. He had already quoted what God has said in Genesis 1. Now he goes to the kind of zoomed-in creation account of Adam and Eve. And he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, which says, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. From the beginning, God established marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. We say it like this in our core beliefs that God has established that. One man and one woman for life as the cornerstone of the family. 
that this is important stuff for us. Marriage is not cultural. Marriage is not societal. Marriage is not this thing that gets to shift with the whims of the majority. Marriage is defined as God himself created it. And he created it to be between one man and one woman, joined together for life. And God is the one that joins a man and a woman. This is why Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. It is not words spoken on a platform in a marriage ceremony that joins them together. It is not a preacher standing before them in a marriage ceremony that joins them together. It is not a piece of paper issued by the city of Suffolk that joins them together. It is God himself. God is the one who takes man and woman different in his creation and makes them one flesh. This means the marriage relationship is this new thing. It is no longer a singular lonely man because Adam was lonely in the garden. It is no longer this singular lonely woman. It is now these two that have been made one together and they are now eternally something different. Because God has unified them together. How dare we so casually throw away what God has established? Because he is the one who joins men and women in marriage. This picture that Jesus is giving to the Pharisees, <laughs> it's radical. It truly is. Think for a minute, the, the mindset of most of the people that Jesus is speaking to is these men, I can put away this woman for anything. I can send her packing if she burns my dinner. If she becomes less attractive to me, I can send her away. I can put her away. And so Jesus is not redefining marriage. He's going back to creation and correcting their understanding of it. So often in our world, people want to present the New Testament as some kind of this, this old and antiquated and dated understanding of marriage. It's not. It's actually radical. The New Testament, both Jesus and the apostles, present a radical understanding of marriage. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, wives, submit to your, hus your own husbands as to the Lord. And you may say, well, that sounds kind of old and antiquated, but just keep listening. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now also the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We get so hung up on the wives submit to your husband, which is scripture and is for our good. But understand something. What Paul is presenting here, a continuation of what Jesus started in this discussion in Mark chapter 10, is a radical view of marriage. It is not that the man lives as this authority with a subservient wife who he can put away at any whim. No, it's a man living with his wife in a way that he would give everything of himself for her with Jesus as the example. 
There was no one else thinking about marriage in that way in the first century. No one. Marriage was a contract that a man could break at his whim. And Jesus and Paul, the New Testament says to us, marriage is a union that God forms. That God forms. Where each other are giving of themselves to this new union of one flesh. Number four, divorce is a deviation from God's design for marriage and sexuality. I recognize, church, that so far we've addressed things today like transgenderism. We've addressed things today like so-called same-sex marriage, these pressing issues within our culture. But we need to recognize something together. And that is much of the move away from biblical marriage and the biblical understanding of marriage in our culture did not begin with the LGBTQ movement. It began with no-fault divorce. It began when, we began when we began to say, anybody can leave anybody for any reason at all. When we began to agree with the Pharisees and not with Jesus, that's where it began. So the disciples are going to ask Jesus a question then about his teaching. And so they get him alone in the house in verse 10. And they said to them, whoever, and they, they ask him about it. And Jesus says to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now it's likely for us important to remember just contextually that Jewish custom allowed for the stoning of an adulterous spouse, particularly of an adulterous wife. Divorce then may not have been seen as necessary in that case because it ended in the death of the offending party. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus in, in both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 provides an exception for adultery. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, it was also said to you, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, uh, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul expands on that. In verse 12, he says, I, not the Lord, not trying to reduce the impact of what he's saying. He's just saying Jesus didn't teach on this, but Paul's leaning on his apostolic authority. And just for the sake of time, let me just tell you what Paul says here. Paul says that if a, a believing spouse is married to a non-believing spouse and that non-believer wants to leave, the believing spouse is allowed to let them go, that they're no longer enslaved to that marriage. It's not talking about two believing spouses. It's talking about a believing and an unbelieving spouse, one that wants to leave. But notice this in the teachings of Jesus, giving us the exception for adultery and the teachings of Paul, giving us these exceptions for abandonment. Divorce is never commanded. It is only condoned in the exact same way it is in Deuteronomy 24 because of sin. Divorce is always caused by sin. I did not say that divorce is always caused by the sin of both parties, but divorce is always caused by sin. While it was allowed in some cases under Moses and still allowed, under the teachings of Jesus and the apostles here for the New Testament church, it is never commanded, only tolerated. Now, here's what I recognize. Just as I recognize at the beginning, there are probably some people in here influenced by our culture that are trying to redefine marriage and redefine gender. There are definitely some people in this room who have experienced divorce. 
And you read a passage like this and you hear a sermon like this and you may think, you may listen to the enemy who wants you to believe that your preacher's beating up on you right now and that Jesus is beating up on you right now, that Paul's beating up on you right now. No. My intention's not to beat up on anybody in any case. Simply to tell you what the word of God says and to call you to believe it. To, to, to trust it, to believe that it is good and that it is essential for your discipleship, that being right-minded about this matters. So if you have been divorced and you are remarried, there is nothing you can do about that. You, you can't go back and change what happened yesterday. What you can do is live and honor the marriage that you're a part of today. What you can do is set your mind to living in a one-man, one-woman union for the rest of your life now. That's what you can do, and that's what we should do. Oh, church, in the same way that we shouldn't embrace the pressure of the LGBT com community in our culture, we should, not also, we should also not embrace no-fault divorce and just say, oh, well, you grew apart, it's fine. Let us see any deviation from what God has said is good as being bad for because it deviates from that which God himself established. So what? We should honor God's design for marriage and sexuality as a reflection of the gospel that saves and unites us. Let me begin with Isaiah chapter 5, where the prophet says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We must be warned against affirming what God calls evil. transgenderism, so-called same-sex marriage, no-fault divorce, to call these things good is to go against that which God has said is good. And no, you're not going to win friends by holding this position. This video likely, we put this on the internet. It may get censored on some of the things that we put it on. If not, I'll get some pushback from people. Okay, I mean, we got to get over the idea that we want to be popular and so we're willing to embrace that which is evil and call it good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to churches, gatherings of Christians that have done so. Judgment will come swiftly. But not only that, this is not only about us affirming that which is good, it is us seeing it as good and embracing it as good and believing that it is for our good. The author of Hebrews in the 13th chapter of that book writes, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. We must be a church, a gathering an assembly of people that works to honor marriage. That's what we say in our fifth core value. We, we, we say that we will honor marriage and family and that we will work to do so. It's the only thing that in all of our core values that says we will work to do. You want to know why? Because marriage is work. It's work. It, this one, this you know, one man, one woman union that God creates isn't easy. It's work, and it requires not only the work of the man and the woman, it requires the work of the church to work together, that we honor marriages together. 
that we ensure that the marriage bed is undefiled together, that we encourage one another to hold fast to what God has said is good together. Why? Because in doing so, even though our world is not going to like it, we reflect and demonstrate the gospel to them through it. Back in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul has outlined this marriage of, of sacrifice on both the part of the woman and the part of the man, who are sacrificing for one another. He says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So once again, Paul looks back in creation. He says, this mystery is profound that I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Hear me, church, by obeying the scripture on marriage and sexuality, we proclaim the gospel. We proclaim it in a way that the world does not want to hear it, but let's just be honest, the world doesn't want to hear the gospel anyway. Many in the world will continually reject the idea that they are sinners in need of a savior, but our marriages, Paul says, our marriages tell people about Christ and the church. As we sacrifice over years for one another, as we give of ourselves over years for one another, as we remain monogamously committed to one another as one man and one woman, we show the world the relationship that Jesus has with his church. Loving and forgiving and compassionate and patient and kind. This is what our marriages do. Proclaims the gospel. It proclaims the relationship of Jesus and his church. So church, let us honor God's design for marriage and sexuality, not because it is popular, but because it is good and right for us to do so. And by doing so, we share with the world the hope of Jesus who loves his church as we love our spouse. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have created for us a good design for marriage and sexuality. Let us call what is good in God's eyes, good in ours. Let us stand on this truth. I pray, God, for the one in here that is struggling with believing this today, that is struggling with their own temptation to deviate from it, that are struggling with their own temptation to think differently than the word of God thinks about what it means to be a man or a woman or what it means to redefine marriage or maybe even what it means to be in the marriage that they're in right now. God, would you help them? Show them what is good and necessary from your word and let them put off sin and follow Jesus. Let our church the families in our church be a reflection of the gospel in our community as we stay committed to your design for marriage and sexuality, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I meant what I said at the beginning. If today was a struggle for you, I would love to talk with you. I'm not gonna ask you to come down in front of all these people and admit it's a struggle, but I'll be in the lobby afterwards I'm easy to set an appointment with. I'm happy to sit down and talk with you. I've got resources I can help provide for you. We have resources to help strengthen your marriage. We have resources to help you think about men and women and sexuality. We have resources for these things. We're happy to help. 
But we need to know that you need help, and it's going to take on your part reaching out. And so here's what we do together. In the midst of a culture that says we're backwards and antiquated and wrong, we say the Bible says this, so we're going to believe this, and we're going to trust that Jesus will hold us fast in the midst of that opposition. So we sing that now together as we stand and worship him.